Hello and welcome to Switzer TV, I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, I ask three big questions. A, should you worry about a pullback from the stock market? B, what are reliable companies out there that you should be thinking about investing in right now? And finally, could Afterpay seriously go to $100 as predicted by the big US investment bank, Morgan Stanley? To answer these questions, I've assembled Julia Lee from Berman Invest, Adam Dawes from Shaw and Partners, Rudy Philippeck Van Dyke from Effing Arena, and my colleague Paul Rickard from The Switzer Report. And also, I talk about a new fund for those looking for higher interest rates. The product is the Metrics Direct Income Fund, which seeks to provide investors with returns of 3.25% a year above the Reserve Bank cash rate, which is currently 0.25%. We'll talk about that with Metric Partners Managing Partner Andrew Lockhart. So let's get on with the show and welcome in Julia Lee. Each week we like to catch up with Julia Lee to see what's going on in her head when it comes to stocks. And uh, I've got the question, Julia, are you still positive on stocks? Yeah, I am positive. And I guess it's a big question for investors at the moment, where whether we're still in the process of a bust or whether the seeds of a boom have been planted. And for me, when you have a look at the macro level, when you see large amounts of spending by governments and central banks, usually these are the signs of the seeds of a new boom rather than the process of a bust. Um, the difference is that this time around, we haven't had the usual bust process where you see a clean out of inefficient companies. And instead, you are seeing a lot of companies which are surviving through government support, what we call zombie companies. So that to me tells me that the next cycle might be a little bit shorter than the typical cycle, which is usually seven to 10 years. So we may see a four to five year cycle instead, and that the next bus would be more painful because there's a lot more work to be done. And also it's from a higher base. So look, I think it's looking good. It's hard to be optimistic in the midst of a lockdown, especially if you're based in Victoria. But generally, uh, bull markets start on disbelief mm, as well true. as um, a lot of scepticism. So at the moment, the market is looking good. Of course, the test is going to be uh, the full-year earnings season in August. But don't forget that you know it is amongst the uh, darkest of days that the market tends to focus on the future. And you have to ask yourself, where are we going to be in two to three months' time? Julia, do you think the um, discovery of a vaccine uh, with widespread application is going to be very important to take the market up another leg? Absolutely. At the centre of this has been a health crisis. So if there is a vaccine which is available widely to the global population, then um, and you'll probably need more than one vaccine for that, given the population of about 8 billion people that will need the vaccine. So look, we'll, we'll most likely need multiple vaccines. But the reason the market is so sensitive about it is if we do see an efficient vaccine, then that's the end of the lockdowns uh, for the time being mm. until the next pandemic. Um, but look, the vaccine is very important and central to the market starting to refunction and economy is starting to refunction normally. But I don't think we're going to see a total lockdown like we saw back in March. And certainly here in Australia, um, we've seen the numbers in Victoria. They've been pretty bad, but they've started to go down on a per day basis. And in Sydney and in New South Wales, they are doing contract tracing quite well. So they know where the cases are coming from. Okay. Let's talk about stocks that maybe haven't been loved yet, 
are, are kind of reliable stocks that if a person wants to invest for the year ahead, what, what kind of stocks fit that bill, do you think, Julia? There's plenty out there that are a little bit unloved. Um, in fact, the areas that have been quite hot on the market are technology. But if you move out of the technology space, I think there are lots of potential investments for the longer term investors. It depends on how much risk you want to take. If we're looking at the COVID-19, um, I guess, uh, period, one of the stocks which is benefiting quite strongly from COVID-19, I think, is Metcash. Now, Metcash is a company that's been dragged down by bad news over the last mm. few years. It lost the distribution contract with Drake's. But during COVID-19, people are shopping more locally. Their, their footprint has become smaller. And that's been great news for Metcash. They've seen strong sales come through. Um, in fact, they saw strong sales in April, they saw strong sales in May, and they saw strong sales in June as well. And in fact, in the first seven weeks of their financial year, they released numbers and food sales were up by 9.3%. Hardware sales were up by 9.4%. And also liquor sales were up by 5.4%. So look, I think that in an environment where Coles and Woolworths are trading on much more expensive multiples, we are seeing uh, Met Cash fighting back again, mm. and that's not necessarily being reflected in the share price. Yeah, I know. I, I, I talked about that in the Switzer Report on Saturday, and I looked at the uh, website for Met Cash, and of course, IGA is one of its its big um, stories there. Might attends another one, and when you look at the website, it says we're we're based on three pillars: hardware. Food and liquor, and you're right, they're all yeah. doing well because of coronavirus. I should mention that we do hold this one in the fund. And the other one I like because of coronavirus that we also hold in the fund is Next DC, which is data centres. Um, a lot of people are working from home. Um, I haven't really been back to the office since March. And companies, large-scale companies, are having to cater for their employees working from home as well. So there's been this acceleration in this move to the cloud, and that's been great news for uh, data centres and technology utility type of companies. So, look, Next DC has been doing well, Telstra's been doing well as well, um, and benefiting from that COVID-19 environment. But I think what we are seeing an is an acceleration of a structural trend that's already been there, and that's the migration to cloud. Mm. Julia, what about those people who are a bit of thrill seekers and they think, well, one day Webjet and Flight Centre must do well when we all start flying again. What, what do you think of those sort of companies? Look, I, I think there is a huge opportunity here for the brave, um, given that we are seeing Webjet now trading back under $3. Flight Centre's got a 10 in front of it. Qantas has just done a capital raising. I think the key to look out for here is that there is a strong balance sheet. And most of these companies have already done a capital raising. There is the risk that they will need extra capital if international travel isn't back to normal capacity by 2022. Um, but if you are brave um, and things do go right and we do see lockdowns being lifted and travel coming back, then there is a huge opportunity in this space as well. I'd probably avoid Sydney airports for the time being, and that's only because um, it is very reliant on Qantas and the longer these these international travel restrictions last, the greater are the possibility of a capital raising. I'd prefer to go with the companies that have already raised capital, so have a relatively stronger balance sheet than their peers, which may have not raised capital earlier on in the game. Okay, now I, I pose a question for you to think about. Uh, you got Morgan Stanley saying that Afterpay will be a hundred dollar stock. What do mm -hmm. you think? 
Look, I think there's lots to like about Afterpay. I love the stock and I love the story, especially now that it has partnerships, not only with MasterCard and Visa, but also with um, Apple Pay and Google Pay, which is a huge advantage for when it's rolling out in the US, that it only has to flick on a retail client rather than having to sign them up because of those platforms that are already in place. So Afterpay now is all about expansion, not only into the US now, but Canada as well as the UK and I think it is going to be a strong growth story. What I don't like about this story are the multiples. They're, they're eye-watering multiples. Um, so look, I guess when you are seeing an environment where the Nasdaq is booming and rising, then you are going to see like stocks like Afterpay continue to do well. But you have to be careful when you see a correction. Afterpay is going to fall a lot more than those traditional technology companies simply because it's still at least two to three years away from making a profit. And that's for a $40 billion business. Mm. Julia Lee, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. That's Julia Lee from Berman Invest. Well, to catch up with the market today, I've got Adam Dawes from Shore and Partners. Adam, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Peter. How are you today? Very good. Very good, mate. Now, look, tell me this. The market today was down. What's the story yes. for today? Well, the story was today that there was a couple of things. that The banks definitely helped uh, bring the market lower. They're under a little bit of pressure at the moment with uh, extra lockdowns going forward. I think that's definitely one of the issues for the banks. Uh, secondly, we saw the energy stocks also quite low as well. Woodside dragging definitely on the market today. But on the flip side, BHP and the miners were doing very, very well. And the tech stocks actually still, you know, you can't stop these things. You cannot stop these right. things. But the tech stocks uh, also contributed a little bit. So there's a little bit of a mixed day. And pretty boring because average, uh, the volume traded today was only 480 million. Mm -hmm versus on average around about 925 million. So it was definitely a quiet day on the market. Adam, a few weeks ago, I wrote 10 reasons why this market should pull back and it hasn't pulled back. Um, <laughs> and I, but I did put it in my story that I thought, well, if something's gonna keep optimism up, it's gonna be the expectation that maybe a vaccine will come sooner rather than later. Yeah. Do you think that's part of the story of why we, we aren't selling off that Wall Street believes a vaccine will happen early? It's definitely following Wall Street, Peter. I agree with you on that. That That's definitely uh, one of the moves. I think also that we've got reporting season coming up and I don't know whether the market believes it's going to go down or up. So really we're undecided about what's going to happen there. So I think, you know, we've had a good run. We keep doing a lot of work around this 6,000 level. That's pretty much where we're sort of sitting and we're just hovering around that level. So I think people think that it's fair value yeah. at around here at the moment. Yeah. But really, it'll all come down to August when the rubber actually does hit the road and we actually get to see some numbers from the 1st of Jan to the 30th of June. Yep. Okay, let's talk about a story you're interested in, namely the big miners. Uh, yep. Are they going to be big deliverers of dividends this year? It's an interesting one because you've seen uh, BHP Rio or BHP getting close to $40 and every time it gets there, it usually gets hit pretty hard. We've got Rio over $100 at the moment. And dare I say, even Fortescue, just going from strength to strength. And that's basically been because the iron ore has been a fantastic story for our market and has really held up our market or kept our market high going through COVID and even and going forward. Mm. So higher commodity prices do mean higher dividends and potentially 
that does mean that we will see some big dividends being paid by the big miners. You know, we know Andrew Forrest, he, he does get, what, what's it, a billion dollars a dividend or something like that. He's going to want to see his 24 cents plus and, and potentially there might even be a special there. And we've got BHP and Rio with their coffers very, very full from iron ore, copper, uh, aluminium. So I would expect a very, very good dividend and a reporting season from those big miners. Yeah. Andrew would, would collect some pretty good franking credits too, wouldn't he? Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. Okay, let's go to an area a lot of my viewers would be interested in. What companies, because we know the tech stocks have really gone ballistically. Yeah. Um, and they're good companies and they've been helped by the circumstances of the coronavirus. But what companies do you think look like good, reliable stocks to buy now that you might have to wait a year or two to see some very good returns, but they are solid stocks that you like right now? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, we, we haven't found, I mean, there is value out there, no doubt about that. There is value, there certainly is. And, you know, first of all, I would always look to something like a Wes Farmers. Um, I think they're going to report very, very well. They've got Bunnings, they've got Officeworks, you know, those kinds of things. They're going to do very, very well. And I, I suspect that's going to be one. And then the offshoot, Coles, I think that is going to report very well. And even Woolworths, to some degree, will report very well. So, look, certainly in that consumer just or consumer staple space, I think that's going to be somewhere where I'm putting a lot of clients' money in at the moment. Some other areas where they've probably been sold off, but then, you know, it's been a bit tough. And you, maybe if you're talking about waiting for a year, it could be the Sydney airports of the world. Mm. I know that, you know, travel is not happening and Sydney airports came out with their numbers today down 98% in traffic wise. So the numbers are horrible, yeah. but it's actually holding up nicely here at $5.50. Mm. This stock should be a $7, $8 stock any time of the day. Um, you know, if you're talking about looking a year ahead, year and a half ahead, um, Transurban came off a little bit today, potentially on the back of uh, potential second round of shutdowns. But, you know, these are very, very good businesses. And I, I really like Sydney airports as a business going forward. So something like that, I think, is a, is a good buy at the moment. What about the more risky ones like Webjet and Flight Centre that really yeah, I do... I knew you'd try and get me into those ones. <laughs> well, the thing is, is a lot of my viewers care. Some people, yes. some people wanted a big, a big spike immediately. But if we imagine in a year's time, you know, people, yeah. you know punsy people like you and me are flying to Europe again. Does Flight Centre and Webjet start doing well again? Well, you be in first class and I'll be in economy, Peter, so that's okay. Um, all right. So, look, yeah, flight def Webjet, uh, I'm not so convinced on. I think Flight Centre's got the management that I really, really like. Mm. So, you know, anything with Flight Centre, anything with a $9 handle on it, I think it's worthwhile. Anything that sort of gets up to 9 it gets up to 10 11 and I think it's a little bit expensive. You've got time to wait. But I like Flight Centre for the management. They are very, very, very good at what they do. Yep. And I think it's, yeah, it's, and it's accumulate down at these levels. Okay, this is the easy question. Uh, Morgan Stanley thinks Afterpay will be a $100 stock. Now, I, I know you and I, when we were on the old uh, uh, Sky Business Channel and yep. Money Talks, we, we thought, you know, when I got into the 30s, it was a sell. Uh, yeah, now absolutely. it's in the 60s <laughs> and they're talking 100. What do you think? Look, yes is the answer. I, I you know, you, you can't, I can't see anything that's really stopping it. US expansion, 
um, you know, um, uh, com uh, coronavirus uh, paychecks or, or the stimulus money that's coming in. It's feeding all of that online businesses. And we've seen Katmandu, we've seen all of the retailers come out and say online sales are booming. This fits in perfectly with the zips, all the afterpays of the world. Um, you know, Afterpay has that US expansion under control. It is moving from strength to strength. I, you know, yes, $100 is very, very possible. They raised a lot of money here at $65 around here. So a little bit careful. That has to work itself through this, uh, the stock. Mm -hmm. But once that's worked through, absolutely, $100 is not out of the question. Well, I think one of the last times we were on um, TV together, I actually uh, thought zero was my, my stock of the future at $40. And I thought, well, I, was, did well. yeah, I thought I was taking a big risk saying that. But I, from my point of view, a company like Zero, I understand it better. Mm -hmm. There are a few curveballs with Afterpay, like, you know, would the regulators get stuck into them? Yes. Um, but on the other side, are they a takeover target? So I totally agree, $100 is possible. I think I'd rather your money in a, on it than mine. Okay. Well, I'll put some money on it tomorrow. How's that sound <laughs> okay, <good>. for you? <laughs> All right. Cheers, mate. Adam Dawes from Sherwin right. Partners. Thanks for joining us. To catch up with Rudy Philippeck van Dyke, the founder of FN Arena, to see what he's seeing in the market right now. I've got Paul Rickard to come along and give uh, Rudy a double grilling. Because, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, he can be a cantankerous bear at times. <laughs> Rudy, great to see you. Well, Peter, um, I think in, if that's the introduction, I'm definitely going to surprise you today. <laughs> Good to be great, here. It's great to hear. All right, now let's kick off. I think a, a lot of people would generally like to know, um, what do you think is going on in the market right now? Are you expecting there will be some kind of pullback? Or do you think Wall Street's getting it right, being optimistic? I think all of the above. Um, I don't think we should be worried too much about uh, a pullback here. Yes, it can happen. I actually think if it does happen, it won't be a big one. Um, I mean, we are at this, at this particular point in the cycle where we are looking forward and there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. But I do think that there are plenty of reasons for investors to, to remain on the optimistic side. And um, I actually think too many people are too worried about uh, valuations. And they forget that at this point in the cycle, when earnings expectations have fallen so deeply, that valuations in the share market have to be high, because otherwise you're basically giving up on the economic recovery. And even the more subdued forecasters, they still see a recovery next year. So Rudy, just talking about valuations in the recovery. So we saw the market uh, back on the 20th of February, it was uh, over 7,000, it got down to 4,500, we're back at 6,000. So that's a long way down, but we've come up a long way since. You don't seem to be too worried about valuations and you don't seem to be too worried about some of the people expecting a second or a third wave, you know, to sort of, uh, you know, really kill the economy. Is that, is that a sort of a fair sense? Yes, I, do. I don't think we're going to kill the, the, the recovery or the economy here. Um, if there will be bumps, there will be interruptions. Uh, we probably will have to recalibrate our forecasts uh, on an ongoing basis. But if you, look, if you look beneath the bonnet of the share market, you'll find that the stocks that have been placed on, on quite meaty 
uh, forecasts, they are actually either the beneficiaries or the more safer place in the share market. Like think about a Coles or a Woolworths, uh, a ResMed, Fish and Pickle Healthcare, for example. Yes, those stocks are on, on high multiples, but that's not a worry, I think, because they probably deserve to be on a high multiple in this context. And then you have a whole slew of other companies. Um, think about the banks, the insurance companies, the uh, tourism operators. Uh, they are not on high multiples, and that's probably deserving too. And yes, we do have a few pockets in the market where you can question the exuberance. And uh, I mean, in the US, uh, Tesla seems to grow up by 10% every single day. Uh, and in Australia, of course, there's a lot of uh, uh, fascination with, with how, how high uh, Afterpay can go. But I wouldn't necessarily uh, take those exceptions as a, as a barometer for, for how the market is, uh, is faring overall. All right. Now, uh, it's great to know that you are more on par with me than your usual old bare self. In fact, I... I, I I, I saw the old book that you put out a couple of years ago. You actually had a bear, a toy bear, on the cover. That's how bearish you can be. So it's good to see that you've got a bit of optimism, Rudy. So what are the kinds of companies that you think, therefore, look like good value now? You mentioned the fact that banks, insurance companies are down. Other ones have done well. For someone who wants to buy quality companies going forward, maybe with, with a, a preparedness to wait a year, what kind of companies do you think look like good value? I think I, I own a few. Um, and those companies have, for, for a variety of reasons, have, have not kept up with the market so far. And they're still nowhere near the valuations uh, early in the year of last year. And you can think about companies like a, 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 an Amcor, for example, a Aurora, which used to be Amcor. Uh, there's still a company called Babcor, which I still like. And, uh, and, and I'm going to state the obvious, uh, CSL has come off a lot since hitting 341 early in the year. Great buy around 280. I mean, uh, I think the secret here is, so to speak, the secret, is that you don't, as an investor, you don't take an immediate view on these stocks are guaranteed going to perform 5 or 10% over the next, let's say, uh, two or three months. You just take a two to three year view and then it's difficult to see whether those companies I just mentioned, that those share prices will not be a lot higher than where they are today. Let's go back to the uh, where there's been a bit more froth. And I agree with your comments on both Amcor and, and CSL. But what about Afterpay? I mean, I guess, guess the obvious question, uh, can it be $100, Rudy? And secondly, it can. It can yeah. Well, I guess the question is, will it? It's probably question number two. Yeah. Well, the, what, what I, I regard, I, mean, I don't own Afterpay. I have never owned it. And uh, maybe some people looking in hindsight now think I'm an idiot for not owning Afterpay. But then I'm, I'm owning lots of other companies that are maybe in a less exuberant stage than Afterpay, but still have performed really, really well. Right? I mean, I own stocks like NextDC and Zero and, and Altium and Appen, and they've all performed really, really well. I don't need to own uh, afterpay in that sense. But if you do own afterpay, I think it's, for me, it's an example of how analysts and investors have had difficulties in coming to terms with how these new business models can really surprise to the upside in terms of the growth they can achieve. 
and was Afterpay expensive at $20? Yes, it was. But now it's $70 and it's still expensive. And, and, do, you, and do you have trouble, because a lot of the analysts are using things like uh, enterprise value to sales as, as a multiple and then looking for comparing different companies depending on the multiple. Do you think that's a valid, a, a, perhaps a measure that's here to stay? Yes, I do think so, yes. I, um, may, I know most people like to use price earnings ratios, but we have to accept that price earnings ratios are not the end all and be all, and they have disadvantages, and there's a lot of stuff that price earnings ratios can't cover. I mean, and I just mentioned to you earlier that I, I own NextTC, for example. Well, if you simply looked at the price earnings ratio over zero, you could have never bought it. Yeah. And so you have to accept that we have different kinds of business models and I mean, as long as they grow really really fast and they do then of course those those share prices they, they should be on high multiples yeah now rudy uh, in those years gone by when you and i both debated about whether afterpay was good value at i think we always thought around 10 or 11 dollars was a yeah. great buy i think I, I think we agreed about 10 or 11 peter <laughs> had lots of debates since, at, I think. At, at 18 i think some experts said it was a sell in $30, we thought, no, no, no. But you and I also did discuss, we used to think that these guys could be a victim of a, um, a crackdown from regulators on the basis that they are uh, just like any other credit provider. And it's, it just hasn't come along. Is it still a potential um, biting that this company could cop from a regulator either here or in the USA? I, I think so, yes. I think that's, uh, it's, 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 just, it's the same as the question, like, why are companies like Amazon and, and Google, Alphabet, LinkedIn, why aren't they paying more taxes globally? I mean, well, they're not, but you would expect at some stage that is coming around. I mean, and for Afterpay, I think as they become more popular, that at some stage they will be reined in by the regulators. But the question mark is, is the share price by then $100 or $200 or 50 and we don't we don't know that. I mean, but um, I think what we what what nobody could forecast is is how uh, the acceleration kicked in because of the lockdowns and the pandemic, and that has really helped the like whether well, it has helped that whole sector basically, and that is something we simply didn't anticipate. In that buy now pay later sector is uh, just go through the stocks after pay got companies like Afterpay and Zip and. Uh, and Sezzle and a few others. Uh, if you had to buy one of those, and I know you're, I know you're pretty cold in this sector, and this is the, this is the Rudy we love and and know so much about. But uh, just nominate which of those companies you'd pick. Well, uh, I wouldn't pick any at this point in time, to be honest. See, I tried hard, Peter, to try to nail your question. Right? <laughs> Listen, uh, I'll tell you what I don't like about Afterpay. And, and that probably also goes with, with a few of the other ones. I don't like their governance. I don't like the ease with which they help the founders to, to offload a lot of shares. I don't, I don't like the fact that they are handing out options uh, like it's hot, hot cross bonds at, at Easter. Uh, at some point, those things will come home to roost. It's just at this point in the cycle, they are really, really fortunate that they have so much wind in the sails that it doesn't matter. But those things will matter at some point. Uh, now, Rudy, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, I, I nominated uh, Zip as, a, as a, a worthwhile company to follow on, the, on that very basis that their governance is, a, well, their credit restrictions are a lot tougher than Afterpay. I feel as though it's held their share price back. 
But have you made a bit, a bit of analysis? I know they're, they're priced very high now, but when I first started talking, they were around $1.50, $2. So I'm happy that they've gone up to these very elevated levels. But they seem to be a safer pair of hands than Afterpay, but it's worked against their share price. Um, I think I'm with you on this, uh, Peter. I think I have a few happy investors out there that a while ago, when they asked me, what stocks should I look at? I went like zip, and they've probably tripled their money by now. Hmm. Uh, but again, um, from a logical perspective, and it's probably the same logic that you have just described. I also thought that Zip would be the, the more safer hands in that sector. But the irony, the way it worked out, mm. is because Afterpay works with smaller payments, they, the, the, month, the time they get their money back is much quicker. And that has basically translated into less uh, credit risk, uh, a quicker turnaround of, of, of funds flows, and quicker growth. And that's why, in irony, the the... the what, what appeared at, the fa at face value, the more risky business model, proved the, the fastest growing and, and the more expensive. Ruth, once again, thanks for joining us on the program, mate. Always great to see you. Yeah. Till next time, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interest rates falling all the time and expected to be down here for a long time. Investors are looking for alternatives, and uh, one alternative may well be something put out by metric credit partners called Metric Direct Income Fund. And we're talking to Andrew Lockhart, managing partner of Metric Credit Partners. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hi, Peter. So, Hi, Peter. How are you? Very good, mate. Um, tell us about this fund that you've got now, uh, which clearly is set to try and satisfy those people who are looking for fixed interest? Hmm. So, Peter, we, we uh, launched um, the Metrics Direct Income Fund on the 1st of July, really recognising that investors are looking for an alternative um, to, to monthly income. So, you might recall we have the MCP Master Income Trust that was listed on the Stock Exchange back in October of 2017, so almost three years ago. Mm. Um, we, we've had feedback from investors that some investors don't value the daily liquidity uh, of that fund being offered on the exchange, and some want, want to take away the risk of the traded price on the exchange. And so the Metrics Direct Income Fund was designed or is designed to be an unlisted version of the MCP Master Income Trust without um, exposing investors, I guess, to, to some of the traded market volatility. Yeah, and we, we saw that with the coronavirus crash, that a number of you know, funds that have a pretty good history of returning good income streams, the market just took a set against them and the actual unit price fell, which would have unnerved a lot of investors. Mm. Certainly in our asset class, you know, our asset class is, uh, is in the debt part of the capital structure. So if you think about where we sit, you know, equity is the most volatile asset class. People are investing in equity, looking for capital gain and growth. They invest in the part of the debt part of the capital structure for capital preservation, less volatility, more predictability around their income. That's what we invest in, in the, in the form of corporate debt. And so investors investing in the 
metrics direct income fund can gain exposure across a diversified portfolio of, um, of uh, a diversified portfolio of corporate loans, um, providing stability of capital, regular predictable income with income paid monthly. Okay. And uh, and and without that uh, volatility on the exchange, I think gives it gives it a unique feature. Yeah. So Andrew, explain to people watching how you're able to lend to businesses effectively and get stability of capital and consistent income returns. So Peter, our, our team um, is very heavily involved in directly originating transactions with Australian companies, uh, not small, medium-sized businesses, these are larger corporates. And so when we, when we look to lend, we're, we're lending to ensure that the that shareholders and equity, equity capital, where's the risk of first loss? And so the issue for us is that people that invest in equities are, are really taking the risk that the company is going to grow and perform and, and, and deliver capital value. When, when, we, when we lend money, you're lending money on the basis that it is a loan. So the company is obligated to meet the interest and fee payments. They're required to meet the terms and conditions upon which you've made the loan. And often that has restrictions. And so, you know, you think about it when you when you buy a house, you know, you've given the bank security over your property, you're obligated to meet your monthly interest and principal repayments. It's no different when we lend money to a company, they're obligated to meet what is contractually due to be paid to us in the form of principal and interest and fees. Hmm. And so do you take any security against uh, that loan? In some cases we do. Um, so generally, if it's a very high investment grade, publicly listed corporate that has a high investment grade, often their facilities will be unsecured. But for all other borrowers, it would be a secured loan. And so it might be security over the full going concern of the company. So over the fixtures and fittings and floating rate or floating, floating charge over all of the company's assets or in the case of a property related transaction, it would be a charge over the company together with direct security over the property. And how many companies would you lend to inside the fund? Because people would like to know that there's a lot of diver diversity um, behind the, 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 the borrowers of the money that they're effectively putting in to the fund. That's right, Peter. Diversification and lowering the risk to any one individual company is very important. So we, we in, in the Metrics Direct Income Fund, investors would gain exposure to around about 145 individual borrowers, mm. where the largest exposure that we have to any one individual company averages around about 0.9 of 1%. So well diversified across a range of companies operating in the Australian market where we've provided debt funding to those companies. Now, is it open-ended? You know, the amount of money you get, is it going to be determined by how much money comes in and then you on-lend it or you have a predetermined target? Yeah, no, we, we're, we're active as a lender. So if you think about our market, we compete against the four domestic banks and range of foreign international banks that are active in providing funding to Australian companies. So we're looking to raise capital in an open-ended fund that will be continued to be offered to investors on an ongoing basis, and we'll use those, those proceeds to lend. So 
our position is we raise capital from investors. We seek to then find good opportunities to lend to companies. Then we manage the risk associated with that lending activity, delivering the, the returns to our investors. Okay. And so what kind of uh, indicative return are you, expect, are you hoping to make for, for, you know, with the fund? So the minimum target return in the fund is um, the RBA cash rate plus 3.25% net per annum uh, with income paid monthly to investors. A good indication of how we've performed it though is probably MXT. So this is the unlisted version of our ASX listed fund, the MCP Master Income Trust. Yep. Uh, that fund is almost has three years of track record where we've exceeded the minimum target return and delivered consistent monthly income to investors. So Andrew, is this open for open to only sophisticated investors? No, Peter, the, the funds available to our clients in total. So it could be retail clients, self-managed super funds, sophisticated investors. So the funds available for monthly applications, so investors can invest each month and uh, income is distributed each month. And then liquidity is available for investors subject to the various terms of the fund available on a monthly basis also. Mm. Well, of course, in a perfect world, people would love uh, turn deposits to be up around four or five percent as they used to be. But, you know, this, uh, in a sense, uh, is not a, a, a version or a rival to turn deposits. You are going up the risk curve, but your goal, I presume, by being diversified, reduces the, the chances that things could go wrong. Is that your thinking, Andrew? Yeah, look, Peter, I guess our team are experienced. We've been doing this for many, many years. We, we previously worked inside banks. We've got a lot of experience in terms of originating and managing loan assets that we provided to Australian companies. But you're right, it's not a deposit. It's, a, it's an investment and it's not capital guaranteed. Um, you know, but the issue is when investors are looking at a range of alternatives as to where they might generate an acceptable income, this is one of the one of the pieces of uh, of the puzzle, I guess. Mm. You know, when you think about really before we launched the MCP Master Income Trust or brought some of our other products to market, investors really had limited choice. You know, it might have been a hybrid, might have been a term deposit in the bank, or a corporate bond fund, um, or even a retail bond direct. We're just simply trying to provide investors with choice, uh, and we think as a team we've got a good skill set and a good track record. Mm to deliver on what we've, uh, what we've indicated to the market. Okay, so Andrew, if people are interested, how do they apply? They can go onto the website, Peter, um, so metrics.com.au. They can download the PDS and apply online and, uh, and um, the information is available for them there. Or speak to their financial advisor, uh, obtain some advice and see if the product is right for their circumstances. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate the opportunity to speak.